Hello and welcome to a new Nodia on Your Mind podcast. This is Johan Me, and with me here in the studio is my partner, Victor Sonnebeck. Great fun as always. Absolutely. And in the previous Nodia on Your Mind podcast, we talked about inflation and what it could mean for future interest rates, for funding costs for corporates. And we have a new topic for today's podcast. We are going to talk about corporate funding. And this is based on our new Nodia on Your Mind report, which we have titled The Financial Flak Vest. And uh, in this report, we uh, we pick up uh, from a report we wrote back in 2019 uh, that we had titled the financial life jacket. So, so as you can understand, this is somewhat of a play on words, where we uh, we wanted to write this new report and, and kind of highlight the fact that this uh, the need for protection in this new harsher capital market environment has increased from from a life jacket to a flak vest. And uh, yeah, our encouragement that corporates shouldn't have taken and should not going forward take buoyant capital markets for granted as uh, some, so, uh, some form of, of a new normal. Uh, I guess you could say it feels even more relevant today than it did uh, back in 2019. It's almost spooky with the sort of capital market environment uh, with frictions in the banking system that we see today that uh, this report has become, I, I think it's fair to say, way more relevant uh, than, than we envisaged when we uh, wrote it. Uh, but in the previous report, uh, four years ago, we mainly looked at the very strong and more than a decade-long bank-to-bond trend regarding corporate funding uh, in the Nordic region. And what we wanted to do now was not only to update that, uh, but also to expand the analysis a bit. So we wanted to, this time, look a bit more broadly, uh, also delving into corporate average. Uh, leverage in general in the Nordic region, um, corporate funding sources, and also importantly, I think, uh, interest rate sensitivity, uh, given what's happened to inflation and interest rates uh, since about 18 months ago, and not least also refinancing risks. So basically painting the picture, where is leverage and and how does it look? And and then, of course, what risks uh, come with this? So yeah, just starting with leverage, uh, we wanted to see if uh, if and, and where the leverage is. So uh, we looked at the Nordic region and then compared uh, some figures to to uh, the global landscape. Uh, for example, uh, looking at at uh, well, depending on the category of the borrower. So for example, the Nordic public finances are, are generally very strong. So just looking at at government debt as, as some natural place to start. Uh, the, uh, the Nordic region has some 30% of, of GDP uh, in, in uh, Norway and, and Denmark and, and Sweden, uh, while Finland is, is, you could say, top of the league <laughs> in terms of, of uh, being more indebted uh, than the other Nordic countries at some 70% of GDP. Uh, but still, these figures are, are quite far lower than the 70% uh, uh, average in the EU and the, and the 150% uh, figure in the US. So basically, good public finances, and, and uh, in addition to this, uh, the, the government budget deficits are among the lowest in the world, especially in, in Norway, Denmark, and, and Sweden. But how does it look on the, on the private side, you want? That is a different story. Um, and if we look at lending to all corporates, including smaller and medium-sized corporates and households, so, so uh, private sector lending to the non-financial sector, that ranges between 225% and 300% of GDP in the four Nordic countries. And if we look a little bit more deeply into it, we can see that the big challenge leverage-wise is actually found in the household uh, sector in the Nordic countries. So it's basically you and me and all the other citizens. That's where the the challenge lies uh, regarding how much debt we carry. 
total Nordic household debt is equivalent to about 220% of disposable income. And to compare that with something, in the UK, it's 150%. Uh, in the US and Germany, it's 100%. So it's, it's way higher in the Nordic countries. And within the Nordic region, um, the, the two top countries regarding household leverage are Denmark and Norway, uh, where uh, leverage or, or debt to disposable income is 250% and 240% respectively. Sweden is at 200%, Finland a bit lower than the others at 150%. So households is where we see the challenge. I mean, these are quite staggering differences, right? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, this is not the focus of the report, so we, we won't delve too deep into it. But but if you, if you just give us a short comment you want on, on how can this be? Uh, and, and that's, I think, a very good question to ask. Is it some kind of things running out of control phenomenon? I think it's unfair to describe it in that way. If you turn it around a bit, you might want to argue that the reason that household leverage is at the sort of high levels that we see in the Nordic countries is that we've had a very good history of managing credit risks when it comes to lending mm, to households right. and for that matter to, to, to corporates. And we have very, very sophisticated um, uh, regulatory frameworks, uh, practices, rules regarding uh, credit to uh, private borrowers. Um, so it, it one way of describing it would be that it has been possible and manageable to right, have this yeah. kind of leverage level hasn't been been that much of an issue in the, in the past at least. indeed <clears throat> so this uh, naturally takes us to the uh, the uh, uh, large corporate sector uh, which is of course the focus of, of this report and and, and uh, to be fair most reports that we write um, and what we wanted to do was to look uh, look a bit more closely at, at leverage globally uh, for for companies uh, in the stocks global 1800 index so using this index uh, in order to to be able to to see the differences in terms of, of uh, leverage uh, between regions, uh, but also between sectors. And, and why we use this index, uh, as, as we've done in the past, uh, is that it constitutes some 50% of listed market cap uh, globally. So it is a good, a good proxy for, uh, for the global, uh, global listed corporate uh, universe. Uh, and and uh, looking by sector, which we can start with, uh, we see that, that uh, the, the net debt to EBTA, the forward-looking figure, uh, which we use throughout this report, uh, is the height and has increased the most since t- uh, 2006 uh, for the real estate sector, the utility sector, and the telecoms. So for most sectors, uh, perhaps not that big of a shift, uh, but for some sectors, uh, quite a big difference in, in leverage figures. I guess you could say the the capital-intensive usual suspects who have historically had more debt also sure. have increased the most. If we look at the sort of total global level, uh, the net debt to EBITDA has risen a bit from one and a half times to 1.6 times. Uh, so that's not really particularly dramatic. Looking by region, Asia and North America have risen sharply. Europe is up only very slightly. And the Nordic region's net debt to EBITDA is actually down. Uh, used to be 1.3 times on average historically, and it's now down at one times. So really... Uh, where we could see potential challenges from leverage within the large corporate sector going forward would be on the general level in those three sectors you mentioned, Victor, um, real estate, utilities, and telecoms, and by region, more Asia and North America than Europe, and particularly the Nordics, where leverage is down. 
And to uh, add a dimension to, to this uh, funding uh, story uh, compared to what we did back in 2019, uh, we wanted to, to make an effort to try to look at the total funding landscape. And, and what I mean by that is that we, uh, we included the, the total annual, annual volume of new Nordic syndicated loans uh, since 1998. And we wanted to do so to look at what is the share of, of lending uh, to, to Uh, well, your, your standard corporate, uh, compared to what is the, the lending share to private equity. And why we wanted to do this is, of course, to, to try to highlight, highlight some specific pockets of the corporate universe uh, where you do find the most leverage. Uh, and, and private equity surely is one of those. For example, uh, looking at this data set of, of uh, new Nordic syndicated loans, uh, we see that on average over this time period, uh, 20% of new loan volume has been into the private equity. And... And, and with uh, this lending, uh, we see that leverage figures uh, among the private equity and uh, private equity owned corporates uh, is some 3.5 to, to, to five times uh, versus what you want, uh, what you mentioned uh, of, of 1.6 for, for large corporates. So this is clearly a segment where, where, uh, where debt challenges could be more likely. And that's 20% of the almost total loan volume with 80% being the general corporates. Leverage is lower, but that means that for that one-fifth of loan volume where leverage is on, on, on a higher level, well, quite obviously that's where more likely we might see some challenges that will need to be worked through. And another expansion, I guess you could say, to the analysis that we did in the previous report was that we wanted to also have a look at if we could put some numbers on corporates' potential sensitivity to higher interest rates. Um, funding costs, if we look at how they've developed, have risen in the past 12-18 months. And one way to describe it would be to say that they're up back to roughly 2009-11 to 11 levels. And this rise has come both from rising policy interest rates and also from widening credit spreads. So in the past few years, say the past three years or so, funding costs for that period have been between 140 and 190 basis points lower than the longer term historical average and they've now come up from those levels. And to put some sort of general number out there, the average global large corporate has paid in the past three years a funding cost of 3.7% versus historically further back over the years a funding cost of 5.1%. So the past three years have been very, very favorable when it comes to funding costs for corporates. And then uh, using this this uh, change in, in landscape uh, when it comes to, to funding costs, uh, what we wanted to do was to, to as an illustration, uh, just show how much of, uh, of their EBTA, uh, so using this as a proxy for, for operating cash flow, uh, corpus had to spend to service their debt. So, so looking at then the net interest expense uh, compared to the, the EBTA of these corporates, uh, we could conclude that the average global company would spend some five to six percent of the EBTA servicing their debt. Uh, but it's important to note here, as we, we've mentioned already, that just the same as, as leverage figures varies uh, vary, uh, a lot depending on sector. So, of course, that's, uh, that's uh, the, uh, the, the net, interest, net interest expense uh, to EBTA. So, so the amount of EBTA you need to, to allocate to service your, your debt. So, for example, real estate and utilities, they pay some 18 to 19 percent of their EBTA uh, to service their debt. Uh, while telecoms and energy pay some eight to nine percent, and, and then uh, the other sectors are somewhere between four to six percent, uh, typically. 
And we also wanted to show the potential impact from these higher funding costs. And to do that illustration, we put forward the assumption that if funding costs remain at these 2009 to 11 levels that we roughly see at the moment, that would, according to our analysis, require an additional between 0 and 5% of EBITDA to be used for debt service for most companies globally. But by sector, the biggest blows would be seen for real estate, where there would be an additional 14% of EBITDA required to service the debt at those higher funding cost levels, and utilities would need to pay an additional 8% of their current EBITDA in order to service debt. There are, of course, needs to be said, big, big potential variations among individual companies. So if we say that it's going to be 14% for real estate companies, well, then there will be some where it might be 50% and some where it might be 5%. So so needless to say, uh, huge variations depending on who you are. But this is on the sort of sector level to get an idea of where you will find the most impact. Uh, and on an average basis, I think it's fair to, to give some, some credit to our main counterparts uh, in, in writing these reports, which is uh, the large corporates. Uh, because, again, uh, looking at these figures, uh, it seems that, that the Nordics come out quite well. So f- from what we described earlier with, with uh, uh, leverage uh, having become even lower in the Nordic region, uh, these rising interest uh, rate uh, costs uh, for corporates uh, don't really have that much of an effect again, on an aggregate average basis uh, in the Nordics as, uh, as it will have uh, on a global scale. So globally, companies would, would uh, typically need to use some 4% more of EBITDA to service debt with higher funding costs. But for the Nordics, this figure would only be some 1%. So, so quite a minimal shift. Uh, because again, the uh, Nordic region has uh, reduced its leverage uh, from these historical levels mentioned before. And I think it might be helpful to add here that we would not argue with the analysis that we've done on how much more of operating cash flows will be required to service the debt, that this might be the biggest swing factor in, say, a potential future more difficult economic environment. Impact on EBITDA for corporates will likely be more tangible from what happens to demand than the general macroeconomic development. But the point here is that there's going to be an effect in addition to that from the higher funding costs if they persist. And then the interesting, the really interesting thing will be to see where are the companies who might face a headwind on the EBITDA development from what yeah, exactly. their demand and then see an additional burden in the form of higher debt servicing costs. And just again, highlighting that it's, it's not a general problem. It's more of a specific problem for, for certain sectors and, and certain specific pockets of, uh, of the corporate universe. Indeed. And getting back to how large Nordic corporates fund themselves, we also, in this report, expanded our analysis from the prior one four years ago to include both loans and bonds. So we looked at this long trend of um, uh, bank-to-bond migration in the large corporate funding. And looking at when we aggregate up uh, both bond and loan volumes for large corporates in the Nordic countries, we can see that in 2000 to 2011, bonds was, as an average for that period, 22% of total funding, whereas in the 2012 to 22 period, it had risen to 36%. So there's been a big, big jump in more bond funding for large corporates. It varies by country. Historically, Sweden and Norway have been the bulk of the Nordic uh, corporate bond markets, representing roughly 80% of total issuance. But in the past three years or so, Denmark has actually started growing its share. And that may well persist going forward, uh, looking at the large Danish corporates who are the ones who have started becoming more active. 
And uh, looking then at, at different uh, credit profiles, uh, investment-grade bond issuers are the biggest category in, in terms of volume issued. Uh, but we have seen massive growth in, in recent years in, in the high-yield segment and the unrated uh, segment. And what we're talking about here is, is, is of course, the credit rating segments, uh, so nothing else. Uh, and to, to add to this, 2022 served as a painful reminder and that this growth that we have seen, and the, these, uh, you could call them buoyant markets, uh, that this, this capital markets window uh, varies between fully open and almost closed. So looking at different kinds of, of, of bond issuance, for example, local Nordic currency uh, issuance, uh, we note that it was down in, in 2022 from its previous peak, uh, some 16% for investment grade, and then some 40, uh, 54% for unrated, and actually as high as 95% for the high-yield segment. So local currency issuance from high-yield rated corporates uh, virtually disappeared. Now, to be fair, in the underrated segment, you do have, have quite a large share that would be classified as, as, as high yield. Uh, but then again, this, this underrated area was, was down 54% as well. So, so no matter how you look at it, it's, it's quite challenging. Uh, and looking at, at other, uh, other currencies, so, so uh, for example, the US dollar or the euro or, or other, other uh, non-local currencies, uh, we see similar, similar figures with, with investment grade issuance declining uh, in 2022 from its previous peak uh, by some 32%, uh, 31% for the unrated segment and then 55% for, for the high yield rated segment. So 2022 became a year where it was sort of re-established that there are quite big differences in less favorable capital market conditions in what kind of issuer can tap the market and at what sort of terms. And, and, and we think it's important with a reminder like that and quite useful probably from many points of view. Um, and not least when we look at the profile of upcoming Nordic corporate bond maturities in the, the, the next several years. Um, looking at this same split of the past 22 years, uh, the first half of that period between 2000 and, and 2011, we had an average annual issuance by corporates in the four Nordic countries of about 14 billion euros. And in the most recent 10 years, 2012 to 22, the average annual Nordic corporate bond issuance was about 45 billion euros. So the market volume when it comes to corporate bonds in the Nordics, in, in the Nordics more than trebled. Uh, so it's, it's been a dramatic development and, and, and by and large a very, very positive development, I think it has to be said. But for context, also as a reminder, what we can see in the data is that at those times during these past 22 years when market conditions have been less favorable, the typical drawdown, how much less issuance has there been from the previous peak, has been about 10 billion euros. So from a 10-year history of an average issuance per annum of 45 billion, when markets have had some kind of setback, it has tended to be 10 billion less of issuance. And in this, typically the, the trend that you see is that the higher the previous peak, uh, the, the, the sharper the fall as well. So, so this, uh, at least I would say, is where it becomes quite interesting. Uh, because as you mentioned, you want with, with uh, you know, an average, uh, average annual issuance of some 45 billion euros uh, over the last decade or so, uh, looking then at, at how much, uh, how, uh, what kind of volume is coming to maturity in, in the coming four years, uh, we note with, with uh, interest uh, that uh, it, it, you, you could put it that it requires the markets to 
to be as large as they have been. So in other words, uh, purely from a refinancing standpoint, from, from refinancing the maturing volumes with uh, new bonds, uh, it would require the, the, the bond markets uh, to, to be as large as they have been. So the volume itself kind of needs to be there if uh, we want to refinance it. Which is a very important observation, but that's not all there is to it. Because in addition to that, uh, a, a perhaps even more crucial observation, we would argue, is that if you look at what kinds of Nordic corporate bonds are maturing in the coming four to six years, we can see that it's actually roughly half of the maturities which are unrated or high-yield bonds. So the big question here becomes, okay, will all those bonds that mature be able to refinance with newly issued bonds? Right. And, 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 and it's not a given that the answer to that question is going to be yes. We yeah. might actually see that some, particularly perhaps the high-yield and the unrated bonds which mature, may need to be replaced with bank funding instead. So basically a reversal then of of what you mentioned before, this bag-to-bond trend, or at least somewhat of a reversal. It it could be a reversal in terms of the direction of the trend, but I would be surprised if we saw a reversal in terms of how much volume would be sort of swapped from bond funding back into bank funding. And I think that in some cases, rather than replacing with bank debt, it might be a solution for the bond issuer to perhaps issue new capital. Right. to strengthen yeah. the credit profile and, and hence be able to issue new bonds in less forgiving market conditions. And to in some to cases, more favorable terms. Exactly. And, 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 and in some cases, it might be uh, even even the case that you see uh, certain issuers running into trouble uh, yeah. and some sort of restructuring. Uh, time will tell. But, but, but then uh, formidable challenges ahead, I guess you could say, but then trying to, to kind of boil all this down. Uh, how should corporate think, corporates think about all this? The key question that we usually ask, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so what we wanted to look at here is just trying trying to list some key key issues to to keep in mind, and of course, a natural starting point when it comes to capital structure and funding is is to look at how much cash cash to hold. So, I mean, cash is the, is the company's first line of defense, and and we have looked at this from a, a historical perspective, where we see quite an interesting historical pattern. So companies started holding um, much more cash as a percent uh, percent of their uh, revenue after the global financial crisis. Uh, and then we saw this same uh, effect uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, where companies strengthened their balance sheets and, and ha- held more capital in, in uh, cash. And what we know now is that this pandemic boost, uh, it, it has uh, eased somewhat, uh, but hasn't disappeared completely. So it seems that, that there has been somewhat of a sticky effect from this increase in, in cash levels. So, for example, companies globally held some 11% of revenues uh, in cash. In, in 2007 to uh, 2019, uh, but are now holding some 15%. Uh, in the Nordics, uh, they hold some 11%, uh, but we also have to remember uh, what we've been talking about throughout this podcast, that, that Nordic corporates typically have a much lower leverage. And another key consideration to throw in here is one of our old favorite sexy topics, uh, bank regulations. Um Basel IV is being implemented from 2025. We've written a couple of uh, Nudia Mind reports on this in the past two years. Uh, and rather than repeating a sort of long uh, <laughs> review of that again in this podcast, for all those interested, uh, those podcasts on Basel IV are available if you're interested in the topic. But in, in, in a nutshell, what Basel IV will mean is what we would describe as a dumbing down of how banks globally will measure credit risk in their lending. And 
the sad fact here is that it will affect corporate borrowers the most, and among corporate borrowers, it's, it's large corporates who will be most affected in turn. And even within the large corporate category, the biggest changes uh, before Basel IV and after implementation of Basel IV is going to be for large corporates, those which have 500 million euros of revenue or more, who do not have a credit rating. The constant relevance of, of uh, Basel regulations. And credit ratings. And credit ratings. So, so uh, well, it, it's, it's worth having another look then at, at credit ratings, of course. Uh, and back in, in 2020, uh, we did an analysis on this topic. And what we wanted to do here was to look at what are the actual benefits of, of obtaining a credit rating. And then to try to keep this quite quite short, uh, what we did was basically to look at a couple of hundred thousand corporate bonds uh, and try then to analyze what happens with the funding cost uh, for corporates uh, when they obtain a, ra- uh, obtain a rating. And just summarizing, uh, purely from a cost perspective, uh, we showed that that when you get a credit rating, uh, the typical funding cost uh, uh, decline uh, would be somewhere between 20 to 30 basis points. So purely from obtaining a rating, regardless of what this rating is, uh, you typically see a reduction in, in, in your bond spread. Uh, so, so translating this into to comparing then um, uh, the cost for obtaining a credit rating with the benefits of, of obtaining one, uh, we can note that purely from a direct cost perspective, uh, the credit rating would pay for itself if you have outstanding debt volumes of, of some 30, 30 million euros. This is, of course, not including all the time it takes and, and all of these other aspects, but purely from a, a monetary uh, cost perspective. And then, of course, in addition to this, I mean, it's it's a difference in, in funding volumes. It's a difference in, in tenors. It changes quite a bit in terms of the, the access to, to capital market funding. And importantly, upon implementation of Basel IV, having a credit rating for a corporate borrower is going to have a bigger impact on availability and cost of funding when it comes to bank loans as well. Double whammy. Uh, exactly. But to wrap this up... Uh, how should companies think about this? Well, we would really offer a sort of quick five-point checklist for large corporates to be the sort of overall conclusions you bring uh, from what we have talked about today. Number one, diversify your funding sources. Number two, review and manage your interest rate risk. Number three, review your debt majority profile. Number four, reconsider a credit rating if you don't have one. And number five, how much leverage and cash is right for you, given the nature of your business. So pretty straightforward, <laughs> you could say. Uh, and on that last point, uh, we, we can also refer to, to uh, another earlier uh, knowing report that we've written called uh, The Hunt for the Right Leverage from 2021. So if you want to get a hold of that, just, just uh, reach out to any of us and, and uh, we'll make it happen. Or listen to the podcast or on to the, the hunt for the right leverage. You will get all the arguments you need in terms of why your capital structure should be what you have chosen that it should be. That concludes today's talk. It's been a pleasure as always, Victor. Thank you all for listening. Our next Nudia on your mind will be about cybersecurity. Interesting stuff. See you next time. Mm-hmm.